We're in Luke chapter 9 this morning. We're sort of returning from Luke, to Luke. Uh, remember, we spent some time there uh, during Advent season, looking at the birth narratives and um, all of the things leading up to his birth. And uh, now we're going to focus what I'm calling the, the road to Jerusalem. We're going to take the uh, next few weeks some of the, the pictures of, of uh, Christ, the events as he's moving closer and closer towards Jerusalem, and uh, his death is coming closer and closer to instruct us on uh, what that all meant, what took place, what was important, um, all of that kind of stuff. So, Luke 9, verses 18 through 27 this are, is our text for this morning. Hear the word of our God. Now it happened that as he was praying alone, the disciples were with him, and he asked them, Who do the crowds say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist. But others say Elijah, and others that one of the prophets of old has risen. Then he said to them, Who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, The Christ of God. And he strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying, The Son of Man must suffer many things. And be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes, and be killed, and on the third day be raised. And he said to all, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. But I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. Let's pray. Father, help me this morning to proclaim your testimony with simplicity. Help me to know Christ and Him crucified, that your people might know Him more completely. I ask that you would demonstrate your power through the Spirit, so that our faith would not rest upon the wisdom of men, but upon the power of God. In Jesus' name, amen. Oftentimes, the, uh, there's an issue with understanding the meaning of particular words. And sometimes this is a funny sort of experience. In the Princess Bride, one of the ongoing jokes was concerning the word inconceivable. As he kept saying that. And finally, the pirate Dred Scott said to him, I don't think that word means what you think it means. So we have playful aspects of that. The same thing with the three amigos. Yeah, I'm on silly movies today. I don't know why. Okay? You know, infamous. El Guapo was infamous. And they decided, the three of them together, that that must mean more than famous. Okay? It's a special version of famous. It's, it's more famous. Um, sometimes... You know, on the internet, we find people who don't understand the difference between mute and moot. Yes, I'm sure we've all struggled with that one. We've all wanted to post something on our, our, 
our Facebook status. And in fact, I think some of you may have. Um, and then there's just the way words change in meaning. For instance, deck the halls. Let us don our gay apparel. Okay, those of you who are grandparents in this room, when you were kids, that meant happy. When I was a kid, that meant strange. And now it means something completely different. Okay? Words. Meanings. Part of the core of this text this morning is a difference in meaning that was at play. Because most people meant one thing, and but God meant something else. And that was really the core issue. The big idea this morning is that we must follow a Messiah who had to die. We're going to start with life's most important question, and that is, who is Jesus? We pick up in the ministry of Jesus here. To this point, it's been largely successful. There have been some controversies, some struggles with the Pharisees and other religious leaders. But uh, this comes shortly after the feeding, I believe, of the 5,000. Let me make sure I've got it all right here. Um, but you have, uh, you know, he just heals um, a woman and he heals Jairus' daughter. So all of these things are going on. The, the, the crowds are following him and everything seemed to be largely successful. But we find him in this moment uh, in the midst of he's just prayed privately and he's only with his disciples. According to Matthew and Mark, which have parallel accounts of this, this takes place near uh, Caesarea Philippi, which was a largely Gentile nation uh, area, okay, north of Jerusalem. But we recognize, or we could should recognize, that prayer seems to precede all of these major moments in Jesus' earthly ministry. You know, before he calls the twelve, he goes and he prays. Before he, he encounters the, the winds upon um, the Sea of Galilee that almost kill his disciples, he goes and he prays. Prayer. We should remember this. Significant moments even in earthly, our earthly ministry often take place in response to times, seasons of prayer. So that's not the main point. That's just a little bonus for you this morning. Okay? But first he inquires of his disciples two things. And the first thing he asks them is, who do the people, who do the crowds, the ones who are following me and clamoring, who do they think I am? Basically, they answer back, a prophet from the dead. Some of them think he's John the Baptist, arisen from the dead, because John the Baptist has been beheaded by Herod. <coughs> Some people think he's Elijah, in fulfillment of the promise that we find in Micah's uh, uh, prophecy. Some people think he's just one of the random prophets, but he's come back to life. And so they think there's something significant about Jesus, something special about Jesus, but they can't quite put their finger upon it. Then Jesus asks them, who do you say that I am? He asked them directly. It's an important question. It is, in fact, the most important question. This is a question that has something to do with life and death. And I'll return for a moment to my silly movies. Holy Grail. Answer me these questions three, ere the other side ye see. If they didn't answer the questions correctly, they were tossed into the gorge of eternal peril. That's what's at stake with this question. 
because you have to understand accurately, biblically, who this Jesus is. To have misinformation and misunderstanding about who he is places you in eternal peril. This is serious stuff that is here. And so he asked this question, and Peter, who is often the spokesperson for the group, uh, we often see him being rather impetuous at times. Um, this is one of the times where his impetuousness was mostly good. So he, he speaks up, he says, You are the Christ of God. He's saying that Jesus was the long-anticipated Messiah who was sent by God to restore his people to glory. That's what Peter thinks. In the account in Matthew, uh, Jesus says that this was revealed to Peter by God himself. And so we recognize that we only see the truth by grace. It's not something that we reason out. It's not something that, uh, you know, we can put together on our own. But we need the help of God in order to come to this place where we recognize who Jesus really is. And yet, Peter probably didn't understand by that what Jesus understood by that. Because Peter, as a child of his day, probably had a view more like the people around him. That the the Christ of God was this warrior prince who would rise up and would expel Rome. He would free them from their bondage, political bondage, to Rome. And so sometimes our circumstances can color our expectations of what's going to take place because it it was clear from the Scriptures what was going to happen with Messiah came. In fact, we read about the servant of the Lord who was also known as the Messiah from Isaiah. But the people had de-emphasized that and ignored that because they longed for this political freedom. We see that Jesus then says something about the Son of Man. Jesus, the Messiah, speaks of himself. They call him the Christ. He calls himself the Son of Man. That they are the same person. Who is this Son of Man? Why is he significant? Daniel chapter 7. We're not going to spend a lot of time on this, but I want to kind of just give the whole idea of why this person is significant. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like, and of course that word is very important, like, a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom, that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. This is referring to the fulfillment, essentially, of Psalm 2, where God's king is going to be installed upon his holy hill. This is one like a son of man, like a human being, coming before the throne of God in the heavenly places, and there he receives power and authority, not just over Israel, but over the whole kit and caboodle. The eschatological son of man, the one who is going to come and is going to rule all things. Jesus is, although they don't quite get this, responding that he is this person. Not all thought he was a human, but he was. Jesus does the, does the, an interesting thing here. 
is that instead of saying, great, Peter, you get it, now go tell everybody, for, for this point in time, he says, no, you are to keep silent. You are not to tell anyone about this. He warns them and instructs them to keep quiet about his identity as the Messiah precisely because it would be so open to misinterpretation and misunderstanding. He was afraid, essentially, that the people, the crowds, would try to make him king, which is not why he came. So we have to answer this question of who Jesus is, and we will only get it right by the grace of God. Second part of this is that the Messiah suffers to save. That was the secret part. It was there all along, but they never quite got it. There is something that these disciples of his did not bank on about the exalted eschatological Son of Man. That Jesus here is not merely telling the future. He's not merely saying what will happen. Okay, Although that would be impressive enough. He is saying what must happen. He is, he is communicating to them that the scriptures say that this will happen, that this is the way it has to be. This is what's going to take place. It's a necessity for the Son of Man. And it is an unexpected necessity. Particularly when you think of the exalted nature of this person in Daniel 7. What does Jesus say? He will suffer many things. He must endure a number of unpleasant realities. He will suffer lies spoken against him. He will suffer false accusations. He will, he will suffer rejection from those that, that should have loved him the most, his own family. Rejection from the people. He'll have no place. He'll be wander. He'll be poor. He'll be destitute. He will suffer all kinds of things. In addition to suffering these things, he says, he will be rejected or declared to be useless. Who likes to hear that about themselves? You're pretty much useless. Now, there's certain areas in life that I am pretty much useless. Um, (laughs) I would not despise you if you said that about me about certain things. Um, But this is not just the average Joe talking to his friend. This is not a, you know, a, a spouse talking to their spouse about some area where they struggle. Okay? This is far more serious, this rejection that takes place. Jesus specifies the religious leaders of Israel. He specifies the elders. He specifies the chief priests. And he just, he just specifies the scribes. Jesus is talking about his trial before the Sanhedrin. Luke 22. Note all of this. He's brought before them and they ask him, if you are the Christ, the Messiah, tell us. But he said, if I tell you, you will not believe. And if I ask you, you will not answer. But from now on, okay, from that point forward, the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. Isn't it interesting that again, they ask him, are you the Messiah? And he answers, son of man. Here's the thing though. You're going to see him or he's going to be seated in power from this point forward. What do they do? They reject him. 
They reject him as the Messiah. They formally reject his claims to be the Messiah, to be the Son of Man. C.S. Lewis has famously put it, that there are three options that are open to us regarding Jesus. Either he be a liar, he be a lunatic, or he be a lord. Okay? And so they're essentially saying, you are a liar. You're bearing false testimony about yourself. There's no way you can be the Messiah. Therefore, we're going to do our best to have you put to death. Rejected. Declared useless. Unfit to be the Savior of God's people, according to the religious leaders of his day. Not only was he suffered, not only did he suffer, not only was he rejected, but he was also killed. They will have him put to death unjustly. This is not he dies, this is he's killed. There's a difference, a, a, a fundamental difference into what happens. And this is not what the disciples expected. They expected him to ride into Jerusalem and take up his throne and, and the people rising up underneath him and saying, now is the time that we'll get rid of Rome. And he says, I'm going to die. And I'm going to be put to death. This is not their plan. And this is why in Matthew's account, he, he adds something that Luke thinks is un, you know, is unnecessary at this particular point. But it is there that Peter tries to rebuke Jesus and say, no, this is not how it's going to take place. And that's where we have one of the famous statements of Jesus, get thee behind me, Satan. Meaning, you're a temptation from the evil one, when you speak that way. I must die. I cannot complete my mission here if I don't die upon the cross. He's basically saying that Rome is not the problem. It was a problem, but it was not the problem. The problem was their sin. They needed to be reconciled with their God And the only way for that to take place was for the wages of sin to be paid and to be paid by the Messiah as their substitute, as their representative. But Jesus doesn't stop there. He also would be raised. Now this, this, like the rest, must happen. He will be vindicated as righteous, that he died not for his own sin, but for the sin of others, that his sacrifice was accepted. He will be raised again. The Father, okay, he's, he's passive in this particular instance when he speaks of it, okay, in, in John 10 he talks about taking up his life again, but here he speaks of it passively because he wants us to understand that the Father raises the Son from death by the power of the Holy Spirit, and again, this has to happen. The resurrection is not incidental to our salvation. Paul goes there in, in 1 Corinthians 15 by saying, you know what, if there's no earthly resurrection, you know, if you're not going to be resurrected, then there is no resurrection of Jesus. Because they're, they're linked together in the salvation of God. The, the reason that we are going to be resurrected at the end of time is precisely because Jesus was raised again on the third day. You take that away, there's no salvation. 
You just have a guy dead on a cross, stuck in the ground, like thousands of other people. No big deal. The resurrection is essential to under our understanding of salvation and our experience of salvation. It was that way for Paul as well. Ephesians 1 through 2, which we're studying in our community groups. Okay? The whole idea of because we are united with Christ by faith, we are made alive with Him. Okay? We are raised up with Him into the heavenly places. We are seated with Him. This whole idea of union with Christ, which is central to our understanding of our salvation, there it is. His resurrection is central to this. It is the basis for our regeneration. Resurrection is essential. So the Messiah does rule all things, but first he has to suffer in order to redeem those things, as Paul would say in Colossians. But not only that, there's a third aspect to this. The suffering Messiah has disciples who suffer. You see, Jesus doesn't stop with talking about his own suffering. He moves on because it has a direct impact on all who are united to him. Think of Romans 8 for a moment. Verse 16. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Just as with Jesus, there was no there was no crown until the cross, so with us, there's no glory before until we, we go through the suffering. Paul's reminding them. And so he's basing this largely on what Jesus says here. Jesus addresses this to anyone. If anyone, okay, not just if you 12 guys, okay? So he's not speaking only to the, the 12 disciples who will become 11 apostles plus a betrayer. Anyone. So this, is, this applies to us directly, okay? If anyone wants to come after him, they must, first of all, deny himself. This means can mean to refuse or to disregard yourself. That's a radical change. Because most of our life is spent satisfying self. Isn't that basically what we do? We're hungry, we eat. But we don't just eat, you know, nasty stuff. We eat good stuff. Stuff that tastes good. Okay? Unless, unless we're children and our parents make us eat the things we don't want to eat. Okay, we understand that. But this idea of denial of oneself, it's a radical change because we spend most of our adult lives trying to satisfy ourselves. And Jesus is saying that we must no longer live for, for our own desires and for our own agenda, but we must live in, in for his desires and for his agenda. I think about marriage. My marriage. Okay, because I'm more familiar with my marriage than I am with yours. Okay, <clears throat> and particularly music. I love music. Okay, you know I I had a rather large CD collection, and then it got I got 
robbed and my CD collection evaporated except for the five discs that I had in my, my roommates, you know. Um, but man, they still have those things, maybe. Uh, those five disc players, you know, spins around the carousel. Okay. Well, what did I do? I rebuilt my collection. And so I had this, and I still have, uh, this rather large CD collection that, that I developed. But something happened when I got married. The growth of my collection came to a near standstill. Okay? I mean, I think I bought, I used to buy more in one year than I have in the 10 years I've been married. Okay? It's probably not accurate, but it's close. Okay? I, I collected lots of music because I enjoy listening to it all the time. But something changed. I was now married, and I couldn't spend all my money on the little things that I want. My money had to be redirected in love and service to my wife. That's what Jesus is saying. We stop satisfying our desires so that we might live according to His desires and His agenda, and that means denying oneself, which is, of course, rather painful at times. Which is why Jesus continues, take up His cross. This was very clear to them. This was not just an inconvenience. This was an invitation on a one-way trip. They're pick it up every day. It is a death. It is painful. A few years back when I still lived in Florida, one of my good friends and I had gone to the Red Sox game. It wasn't the Rays game. Red Sox game. Okay, we're driving back, and that's just a good time to, you know, you're in a car for a couple hours together. You just talk. And so, you know, I'm his older brother in the faith in some ways, and, and you know, he wasn't married yet, but he was dating a girl, and so he started to ask me some questions, and one of the questions he asked was about sacrificing for your spouse. He says, I can't remember exactly what he said, but basically, is that a painful process? I said, oh, yeah. <laughs> Feels like you're going to die. And what he found was, however, that no one tells you that. They tell you to get married, and they think it's going to be all, you know, roses and bliss and joy and happiness, and there is that. But there is also the dying to self that must take place so that you can love the other person. And it hurts. And it hurts to love Jesus at times. There is no disciple who can avoid choosing to die. Jesus does not make this an optional kind of thing. Well, you know, for there's two classes of, of people, and for the serious Christian, there's this. But for those of you who aren't so serious, you know... There's this. You can take this easy sort of discipleship, you know. You're maybe a little weaker or, or, you know, not as courageous or whatever. So we've got this simpler plan to make it easy for you, you know. But for the ones who are up to the challenge, the Navy SEALs of Christians, you know, this tough thing, that's for everybody. Every Christian. This is what he lays upon us. Okay, this is not your best life now. Okay? We can put that stuff aside. Okay? 
And, and if you watch Joel Osteen, turn him off. Because he doesn't understand the implications of the gospel and this whole idea of denying ourselves. My best life is later. That doesn't mean this is miserable. But I am to follow Christ, not my desires, because it's my desires that get me into trouble. This is, this is an application of what Paul talks about in Romans 6. For if we have been united with him in, in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Don't you like that? I love Paul. So you must also consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. The, there's, there's a reality here. That we have to consider ourselves dead to sin precisely because we have died with Christ to sin. But we need to bring it back to mind. That's part of that, that idea of picking up your cross daily. Okay, I'm dead to this. You know, I, I've already experienced in Christ the judgment due my disobedience. And, you know, I don't need to follow this way anymore. Instead, Jesus says, follow me. And there's a, there's a shift in the tense. Now he moves into the perfect out of the simple past. And he says, keep following me. Perseverance in the faith is necessary. It is important. We're not saved by grace so that we can continue to follow the way of the world. We are saved by grace, as Paul would say in Romans 8, so that we can be led by the Spirit into more greater obedience to God and greater fellowship with God. Okay. Then he talks about this. Whoever tries to save his life will lose it, and whoever loses it for my sake will, will save his life. There's this notion here about clinging to your life. And a clinging to your life as you best know it, or the best life now, so to speak, will result in the ruination of that life. You, it will be destroyed and you will lose it. I think back, again, I, you know, I'm like John Newton in the sense that I know my life better than anyone else. And, and so I see how grace has operated in my experience and therefore uh, that's what I could speak to best. 1985, okay, January, year before I'm converted, I go to this, um, evangelistic retreat with my girlfriend. I tried to make her happy, you know. She was Catholic like me, but she was the president of the Baptist youth group. Don't understand how that happens? Just go with it, okay? So we go on this thing, and there was not really a clear presentation of the gospel that took place, okay? But there was this come to Christ, come to Christ, and there was a part of me that sort of wanted, yeah, you know, maybe I want to do that. But there was a bigger part of me that said, Steve, guess what you can't do? I recognized that there was this whole aspect of life that I enjoyed, that I wanted to continue to enjoy, that, that if I had followed Jesus, really, that would be cut off from me. I knew, I knew, you know, somehow it was wrong, but I wanted it. From an earthly perspective, from a human perspective, to follow Jesus would be to ruin my life because I'm not able to participate in the pleasures I wanted to enjoy. And yet that is the only way in which I could save my life, so to speak. Not 
eternal salvation, okay? And so the next year of my life was me experiencing the ruination of my life as my sin came to roost upon my life and cost me everything I thought was important to me. I tried to save my life, to keep it the way I wanted it, and I lost it. Jesus says, the one who ruins his life, loses his life for my sake. Obedience can often look to people like self-destruction. Remember their perspective. You're cutting yourself off from something they find life in, something they pursue happiness in. It looks like you're destroying and ruining your life to them. And Jesus says, you've got life. <laughs> you're going to have it better at the end and then they have it now from all of this. But we're really the ones who end up saving our lives because we enjoy Christ the reflection at the beginning of, of your order of worship has a quote from Jim Elliot. Here's a guy, for those of you who don't know, and I can't imagine, but there's people who don't know about Jim Elliot. Graduated Wheaton, and from the perspective of many people, threw his life away to go to um, Ecuador to be a, a missionary among the tribes there. And he and his band of brothers went, and um, guys like, um, now I'm going to get confused, Nick Saint, Nate, Nate. <sighs> blew it. It was the end, not the Steve. It wasn't Steve Saint. Yeah. So, you know, they go and they lose their lives, literally, as they are killed by the Indians that they're seeking to save. seems from our perspective that it got, everything falls apart. And yet what actually happened, okay, if you take that quote, Jim, Jim is saying, you know, I can't keep my life anyway, so I'm a fool if I try, but you know what? I can't lose my salvation. So go for it. And after the death of these men, which made Life Magazine, the cover of Life Magazine, their families came in. They didn't leave the mission field. They didn't go home, you know, kind of like hanging their heads like, you know, my husband died. They mourned, but they moved forward. And it was actually one of the sisters who had been there earlier and was doing some other translation work began to befriend these people and eventually the majority of this tribe, the Akua Indians, converted to faith in Jesus Christ. And it meant that they had to lay down their life, which their lifestyle was one of revenge. There was a culture known for spearing, meaning if, you know, um, you killed my dad, it was my responsibility to hunt you down and kill you. And, of course, that also means that, you know, it would be 
your family member's responsibility to hunt me down and kill me. And so it just kind of goes back and forth like forever. <laughs> and that was the way in which they picked up their cross. They died. They denied themselves that cultural practice of spearing, of revenge, and found life. They found the freedom of forgiveness. They understood what it was mean to be forgiven by the people who whose family members they had killed so that they could then begin to understand that they had been forgiven by God for all the people they had killed and every other sin they had committed. And they began to extend forgiveness. That's how the gospel works. Because we receive grace, we change. It is impossible for us to stay the same. And so as we think about this suffering Messiah, we have to think about the fact that he invites us into suffering. It should not surprise us that this takes place, just as uh, Peter and James says, don't be surprised. Standard operating procedure. So the eternal Son took on flesh and blood in the Incarnation. He was the Messiah who came to deliver Israel and to rule creation. But this would play out very differently from what the people expected. First, he would be the suffering Messiah, the one who would remove the curse that was produced by sin. He would set people free to follow him in the newness of life that comes from resurrection or regeneration. They have found that newness of life because he rose again. So I ask you, How big is your Jesus? Is he just a great teacher? Is he just a a good moral example? Is he just a king? Or is he your prophet, your priest, and your king who comes to save and rule over sinners? How big is your Jesus this morning? Are you trapped in the same problem Peter had? Or have you embraced the reality of who Jesus says he is and what that means for you? Let's pray. Father, um, What Jesus says here is hard for us to hear. We can deal with the dying Messiah, but we have trouble when it comes to us dying, us denying, us following. But I thank you that it's all rooted in grace. So I pray for the ministry of your spirit that he would come and continue to work in us, continue to lead us as sons of God. Through the things that we have to walk, the suffering that we will experience, may we take comfort 
and knowing that Christ has suffered for us. Now we are sort of, uh, as Paul talked about, adding to his sufferings for the benefit of the church. That we suffer that others might know. Help us to flesh this out. It's hard. But do this for your good, uh, our good, and your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.